feels like Rishi is trying to capitalise on FOMO and trying to get businesses who are like, oh, we might not be able to deduct these costs in full, so let's bring all of our investments forward. And this is good because it will produce a nice big growth bump when the economy is in a real hole and that will get growth going. And maybe he also thinks that kind of cunningly that it will basically be proof of concept for his uh, for full expensing. And he could say, look how much we boost investment with a super deduction. I'm going to do a full expensing after this because it will really boost investment. So that might be the logic here. Welcome to the Pin Factory, the Addis with Issues podcast. My name is Matthew Lesh and I'm a head of research at the ASI. In this week's episode, I'm joined by head of programs Daniel Pryor and Sam Dimitri, the research director for the Entrepreneurs Network. Sam is the man of the moment today. Uh, as the, the government has just announced his um, life's work, that we can already retire young now that the factory tax has been abolished. Yeah, congratulations on that one. A little bit too early for, for champagne, sadly. But I noticed Lesh, you managed the, the intro in one take there. So um, a fantastic <laughs> pin factory first for us. I'm very happy. I managed to also say my name correctly. Say my name, say my name. <laughs> so in this week's episode, we're going to be focusing in razor sharp on to the budget. So before we get on to the bad news, uh, I think it's best to start with some of the more optimistic stuff. And the brightest spark, I think all can agree in uh, this recent budget is provided by the announcement of a super deduction, the Chancellor's rabbit out of the hat moment, uh, which allows businesses to deduct 130% of the, their investment costs in plant and equipment from their tax bill. Um, and this kind of policy is has been popularized by us and specifically by you, Sam, first as full expensing in 2017. Um, and then later when you co-wrote the ASI's abolishing the factory tax paper last year. How have you or, or are you celebrating the sweet, sweet taste of victory? Well, well, uh, Sam Bowman delivered a bottle of Bollinger to my house. <laughs> wow, so, the champagne ooh. I mentioned in the intro is true then, just was, uh, not at this particular time. It was cracked open uh, yesterday. <laughs> but it, it, it is quite amazing how, like, you know, you can sort of push an idea and it eventually comes to, comes to light. It really shows, I think, more than anything, like how powerful Alan Cole is. So I don't know if you know, I don't know if you've had him on or anything, but Alan Cole uh, used to work for the tax fund, actually now works in the Senate, but he has absurd power in tax policy. Um, so I I first heard about him on, the, on an NPR podcast where they're talking about um, Trump's tax plan. And he basically was the guy at the tax foundation responsible for costing it. Uh, and he basically uncovered like 300 billion of extra like revenue loss that Trump hadn't accounted for uh, and forced Trump within like a few days to radically change his tax plan. Uh, he was also uh, <laughs> advising, I think, on Capitol Hill in terms of the development of the Tax Cuts and Job Act, Jobs Act. So he's had like massive influence on this. And his he, he wrote this paper called Fixing the Corporate Income Tax uh, a while back and that kind of got me to understand how important capital allowances were so effectively if you're worried about investment incentives provided you have full capital allowances you can fully write off all your investment expenses in year one you effectively take the corporate tax rate out of the question it doesn't matter whether you have an 18 percent corporate tax rate or a 35 percent whether or not the tax affects if you invest or not is is no longer no longer factors into it if you have full expensing. So I realised how powerful it was as a tax incentive. So I was really happy that we finally saw it. There's there's a lot of like weird things going on with it. So one of the weird things is it's a super deduction. It's not full expensing. Now usually I'd be really against a super deduction because you're effectively subsidising investment, and we don't want companies like this investing. is a hundred and thirty percent figure, right? Exactly. We don't want companies investing for the, just for the sake of it, especially if they can find ways to maybe sell off their investment a year later or borrow to finance it. There could essentially be lots of clever ways to con the tax man out of some cash. So that wouldn't be ideal. But So I'd be giving people problem, ideas right now. Be careful. <laughs> one, of the, 
one of the issues, and, and I assume they're going to have loads of uh, anti-avoidance measures to like combat this. But one of, one of the funny things is that because the tax rate is rising from nineteen to twenty five percent at the same time, um, roughly one hundred thirty percent of nineteen is twenty five. So effectively, it's the equivalent of having full expensing now uh, for the future tax, because you'd have a weird incentive system where if you could, if you had full expensing now, or you could write it off gradually, the fact that the tax rate increases means it's actually beneficial to move all of your tax deductions and your tax write-offs into the future when the rate is a lot higher. If the rate was only like 1% or 2% higher, you probably wouldn't have an incentive to do that. But because we're going up by a whole six points, then you have a real incentive to think about how you time it. So the super deduction is kind of full, kind of a measure to stop businesses from just delaying their investments outright. Uh, so it's kind of sensible in that sense. In terms of your work on this, it does uh, bring to mind the kind of famous John Maynard Keynes quote in terms of practical men who believe themselves to be quite exempt from any intellectual influence are usually the slaves of some defunct economist. I'm not saying you're a defunct economist uh, <laughs> just yet, Sam, but maybe sometime soon. No, I, I think you're definitely the one who um, brought this issue I- into my radar as well. So it's good to be a, a disciple of, of Alan Cole's second second hand um, through to this. I think the, the key point... Because I think it's quite confusing is that the current tax system is uh, before this kind of full expensing um, in itself creates a weird distortion where you're encouraging people um, effectively not to invest in these things. Because in real terms, after inflation, um, you have to pay a tax, what we call a factory tax, on the investment in plants, investment uh, in machinery and, and equipment. Um, and fixing up this tax distortion encourages a quite substantial amount of investment. It was good to see in, in your paper, um, Sam, you suggested that it would lead to full expensing, that 100% deduction would lead to an 8% increase in investment. Um, the OBR estimates it will increase to about 10% with 130% uh, investment costs. So as a head of research, I'm feeling very happy to have published a, a paper with modelling that's been vindicated by um, the, the OBR. Uh, and I think that just speaks to just the kind of big impact that this change would have. So I was very disappointed to see um, the, the news that um, corporate tax is increasing 25%. I think we're going to come back a bit later, a bit of a broader discussion about, you know, is, is that a good idea? Should we be increasing taxes? But if you did that without this change, it would create this huge, huge disincentive to invest. Um, so I think the government should very much be congratulated. It was it was good to say that this was the you know the the cat out of the hat. It kind of reminded me of a I don't know if anyone ever watched the the Steve Jobs um, Apple uh, <laughs> WWC and um, presentations where he'd always have one more thing. Uh, it was very much a Rishi's one more thing, and it was it was an excellent thing to have uh, in there. And I think a lot of economists are, are very happy today. Yeah, that's um, very much a this changes everything moment. It's nice to see not only that think tanks can actually uh, help to change policy, but also that um, indirectly a podcast, in this case, Alan Cole appearing on the NPR podcast, helped to change policy in a, uh, <laughs> albeit slightly indirect way. Uh, we mentioned that it was it was dubbed the, the factory tax from Aaron's, at least in, in our paper and our campaigning around this issue. But when it comes to actual factories themselves, there is a difference here in how the um, the super deduction applies to um, plant and machinery and equipment versus buildings. Is that something we should be particularly concerned about, Sam, because there are different rates involved here? Yeah, so I, th- I think ideally you'd have uh, the, the expensing basically to apply to everything equally. I don't think there's a case for treating them differently. It's less of a problem with buildings just because they're deducted over a really, really long time because they're used for ages and also because uh, typically with a building you can sell it on later. Uh, which you typically can't do with a machine. Uh, so so it's it's not as big of an investment disincentive. But, I mean, we've come quite a long way on structures and buildings. So the UK briefly, and this was so stupid, uh, apparently it was due to EU state aid rules, yet most countries in the EU didn't have, uh, didn't do this. So, you know, blame it on Brussels if you want, but seemingly everyone else in Europe was able to get around this quite comfortably. It seemed like a real civil service drafting nightmare. But we got rid of what was called the industrial buildings allowance. Uh, and essentially, you weren't able to deduct the cost of an industrial building at all. 
Now, under Philip Hammond, he brought in something called the Structures and Buildings Allowance, which meant you could write off them a little bit. Uh, I think we might talk about free ports later, but in a free port, you're going to be able to write off 10% of the cost of a structures and building, uh, structures or buildings in, in uh, each year, which is a pretty big incentive. It means you can write off the cost of a building that might be in use for 30, 50 years, in 10 years. So that's that's promising. But this super deduction doesn't apply to structures and buildings at all, and the structures and buildings allowance hasn't changed at all. Now, what's called integral features. So these are things like uh, lifts, escalators, uh, I think insulation, uh, solar panels on the roof. These Asbestos. Quite... <laughs> well, yeah, so, so the, the, these apply, um, these, these are in what's called the special rate, uh, and they're, they're going to be paid, you get, instead of a super deduction, you get 50% year one, 50% year two. So it's still pretty good. Like it's not going to re it's going to be like a pretty powerful increase in the investment incentives for these relative to the status quo. It's probably a bigger increase, but yeah, it's, it's, it's not as, it's not as big, but it's still quite a promising incentive on those fronts. And I, I wouldn't quibble with it. Now, one of the things I've been trying to figure out for the past sort of 12 hours or so, um, there was some sleep in between, but uh, effectively it's trying to work out uh, how the system applies to intangible investments. So um, think of money you spend to build a website, for instance, or money you spend to develop a software tool, or if you buy a license for a software that you're going to use over the next five, ten years, what what do you, can you write that off under the super deduction or not? And it's really complicated, basically. I've been trying to talk to people. I've, <laughs> As far as I can tell, you can do it because under the status quo, what you can do is if you make an intangible investment, you can make a declaration uh, that it's just, a, and to have it treated as if it was a capital investment, as if it was a plant or, or a machinery. Uh and you can do that with the annual investment allowance, which is our current sort of full expensing for investments worth le- uh, for the first million pounds of business invests. So in theory, you can do that. And I think that's quite interesting that that seems to be the case. And I've had at least someone who runs public affairs and accountancy trade body and someone who is head of tax at a tech company confirm that to me because Torsten Bell and Paul Johnson and also Rob Culver who is a good guy uh, but they've all tweeted out that it doesn't apply to intangibles I think that's just not true they've all either tweeted out or wrote it in newspaper columns uh, and I, I don't think that's actually true so that is quite a funny funny little thing so maybe it is maybe it feels kind of like the treasury has just not even thought about this which is kind of worrying because intangible investment is like half of all investment. But as far as I can tell, it does apply to the super deduction, but loads of people don't think it does. And I'm trying to get a clarification. But that's that's kind of an interesting little uh, wonky aspect of it. Well, Sam, so, so, Sam if, if it doesn't work out uh, as an economist, you can certainly go into being an accounting consultant about what this is supposed to mean and what it does mean in practice, because I'm sure it'll be litigated to, to no end someday soon. Just a, a final question on this before we move on to, to Freeports, actually, which you mentioned uh, a couple of minutes ago. There was uh, a Guardian column in response to the super deduction that, shockingly enough, suggested that this might not be the most efficient use of a uh, 20, 25 billion pound tax break. What is it about uh, you know, full expensing and, and in this case, the, the super deduction that makes it such a good and kind of efficient um, tax break in this case, as opposed to alternatives? Why this over other kind of tax cuts or, or, or free market right. measures? Right. So, I, th- I actually, I think I read the piece you're 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 mentioning, and it does. There, there is one point that the author makes that's right, which is effectively that because this is temporary, and lots of people have their investment plans planned out far in advance. A lot of what will be happening in terms of it being inefficient is that investment that was already taking place and was already penciled in, and basically the contracts haven't been quite signed because if the contracts are signed, you can't apply for this super deduction but they they may as well have been signed so those investments will benefit from a tax relief but the firm 
probably would have made them anyway. So it wouldn't have affect, affected that behavior. Um, and part of this is also a problem that companies are just going to move their investments forward. But because in the future, apparently, we don't have, we're not going to have full expensing after the super deduction expires. So that's another way where it could be postponing the factory tax rather than abolishing it. <laughs> so, so that that could be a problem where it's short term. I th- it feels like it feels like Rishi is trying to capitalize on FOMO and trying to get businesses who are like, oh, we might not be able to deduct these costs in full, so let's bring all of our investments forward. And this is good because it will produce a nice big growth bump when the economy is in a real hole, and that will get growth going. And maybe he also thinks that kind of cunningly that it will basically be proof of concept for his uh for full expensing and he could say look how much we boost investment with the super deduction i'm going to do a full expensing after this because it'll really boost investment so that might be the logic here but what i think what's particularly efficient about full expensing versus say a cut in the corporate tax rate or a cut in any other tax is that full expensing directly targets investment and it directly only affects the incentive to the marginal incentive to invest. And I think people get confused when they talk about taxes because they get too hung up on the headline tax rate. So, you know, Rishi's talking about having the lowest tax rate in the G7. But I don't think that's actually the like key focus, what you should be looking at, because there's there's two other tax rates that matter. There's first there's the effective tax rate. This is the tax rate for businesses actually pay so you know apple might not actually pay the full 19 percent. they might have invested some of their resources so of this year they have a slightly lower tax rate so there's loads of reasons why that might not be the actual case that they pay that tax rate and that's what businesses actually care about in terms of fdi in terms of where to locate people want to locate in the country with the lowest effective tax rate But then there's the effective marginal tax rate. And this is the tax rate that determines whether or not you make a marginal investment. So once you're in the UK, whether or not you build that extra machine comes down to this tax rate fundamentally. And on this case, uh, what full expensing does, uh, at least for the types of investments it covers, is it drives that rate to 0%. So it basically removes all tax disincentive to invest. So it's really, really targeted as a tax break. It's worth just re-emphasizing inclusion as well that the reason why we care so much about investment is investment is exactly what boosts productivity, increases uh, people's incomes um, and creates the, the kind of jobs. And the UK, as I think you quite well stated in your paper on this topic, has had quite woeful productivity growth over the last decade, 0.3% being the, the statistic of, of the decade. Just because that productivity growth has been so low, quality of life doesn't grow. And because when productivity grows, um, it has a compounding effect. That's what raises our, our standard of living over time. We haven't seen a lot of that. And if we can fix that um, productivity puzzle by increasing investment and by using this this kind of tax rate, uh, it can have some quite substantial impacts. That's the thing. And it's 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 not even, I would say, a productivity puzzle. I think it's fairly, fairly well established now, at least, that the kind of twin problems of uh, our current treatment of or our previous treatment of um, capital investment and housing um, costs at the moment uh, are pretty much the key or, or two of the key factors in making our productivity grow so woeful over the past decade. But moving on to just a, a couple of other pieces of good news, we'll keep up our optimistic streak for now. Um, it won't last. See you later in the podcast. Uh, we also saw the announcement of eight free ports in the budget, which will benefit from simpler planning rules, always very nice, uh, tax breaks, like as Sam mentioned earlier, uh, and infrastructure spending. These include Teesside, Plymouth, and the Liverpool City region. Uh, how do free ports help out businesses? What's their their kind of their aim? Yeah, so I mean, the ESA has been talking about free ports since uh, literally probably before any of us were born. Going back to the 1980s, our, our, bo- our bosses, uh, Eamon Butler and, and Madsen Perry, talked about the idea of having basically a, a section, a graphic section, where you, you do lower the burden on businesses in order to, to encourage activity. Now, I think you can make uh, a good kind of economic case against them in the sense that what well, you're doing is moving around activity rather than increasing it. But I think this has a potential to show, though, is by simplifying planning, by having um, 
better kind of tax incentives and some of which you've already flagged previously, Sam, that should be a model for the rest of the country, ultimately. Um, if, it, if it does, and um, it can be shown that those kind of regulatory arrangements uh, prove quite effective, um, you, you can have a broad economic impact. Um, I think you can probably make a case as the government's making about levelling up. I'm not as persuaded by the idea that there's inherent value in moving economic activity around the country for the, for the sake of it. But if, but if we can help some areas that um, where a lot of people are struggling, it, there's, there's probably a, a case for it in that sense as well. I think, um, so one of the weird things about free ports is, so you, the US is kind of probably where they're like most famous uh, and what they do there is effectively they bring the tariff border onto land rather than at the sea. So into a free port, you don't have any tariffs. Uh, and, and in America, so America has quite high tariffs on steel, but relatively low tariffs on cars. So what you can do is you can import the steel into a factory in a free port, build, turn it into a car, and then it will cross the customs border as, as a car rather than as steel. So it will hit a lower tariff burden. And that's called tariff inversion. And that's kind of one of the ways that they create a lot of uh, economic activity there in the US. Now, I don't think there are actually going to be them that many scopes, that much scope for tariff inversion in the UK. I think basically, if you have a system of tariff inversion, it's probably because you've designed a pretty bad tariff structure in general we think you should tax intermediate inputs less than final goods uh you know so there's this like classic case i think i think basically trump bush and obama all puts tariffs on steel at one point uh according to greg mankey bush raised tariffs on steels precisely because he knew they would be repealed by the wto uh and it would give him like a short political piece uh, and he actually realized that steel tariffs are bad so maybe we'll give him the, the benefit of the doubt on that I'm not sure but essentially what happened is you have a steel tariff cost of steel rises uh, it helps the steel industry a little bit but it hurts all of the businesses that rely on steel as an intermediate uh, and as a result the you know all these other businesses maybe I think I think one was like the case of the tire business because they they need steel for the actual rims but they also needed uh, they also needed car sales to go up and because cars became more expensive as a result the tire industry lost jobs <laughs> so you have all of these problems like this and that but i think it's almost like tariffs are a bad idea sam <laughs> exactly but shocking like, are a bad idea but th- this is like a particularly bad way to do tariffs right uh, and I'm pretty sure we haven't yeah. done that in our tariff schedules. So that the classic advantage of being a free port doesn't really exist in the UK. So they're kind of like enterprise zones in ports is probably how I'd frame them rather than as free ports. And there's some good features of free ports. So the best one is in terms of structures and buildings. So a lot of the places where we think factories would be probably make sense to build factories are in the regions that have become free ports, so Teesside, Liverpool City region, these sort of places. Um, and they benefit from a 10% structures and buildings allowance, which would make the UK's treatment of buildings pretty competitive relative to, to the EU in those places. So that's a good thing. Uh, I think there's also, you know, there's lots of other tax breaks. I think there's business rates uh, are zero for new businesses entering those areas. Um I think I think there's like a few other benefits, but in general, they seem seem like they're pretty strong incentives to shift activity there and to boost investment there. Uh, it's just whether or not you think there's value in moving activity around. Uh, there's almost certainly political value. I I always found the the tariff inversion concept slightly odd in that politically it's it's basically politicians saying right we don't want you to effectively avoid tax but we do want you to to kind of try and avoid tax in these specific areas and the the justification of course being that well at least from a political perspective you can say look how many um, jobs look how how much wages have gone up in this particular area Um, and it seems like to me that it's kind of a a win-win in terms of the political incentives align with the economic incentives here the political incentive for free ports of similar zones is you can talk about leveling up and how you're fulfilling that agenda, even though, as you said, Matthew, that's not necessarily a goal from a free market perspective. Um, but at the same time, by doing that, you're, you're demonstrating proof of concept for 
free market policies, your kind of liberalized planning laws, your um, your changes and reductions to particular burdens on businesses, etc. So even though the kind of execution in itself is not particularly, you know, it, it's not applying a free market policy to the entire UK, it's still of benefit um, down the line. Uh, and of course, I mean, at the end of the day, you are liberalizing in a particular area, just because it's not the whole of the UK doesn't mean that you're not you know, there's not a net liberalisation taking place in, in various areas. So it's, it's still a, it's a marginal win even in itself, never mind the, the consequences down the road. And um, just before we move on to, to some of the bad stuff, the, the final piece of good news that we saw in the budget uh, was new visa categories to attract scientists as well as improve visa processes for scale-ups and entrepreneurs, which I imagine uh, you, Sam, in particular, are quite happy about um, at the Entrepreneurs Network. And you work in this sort of space. How big an issue is the visa system in attracting international talent? Do you think some of the reforms that have been announced are positive and will help? Yeah, so I think I think access to talent is probably the key issue for startups. That's that's what they care about more than anything else if you talk to them. So when we do events on visas, they get uh, about three times as many attendees as any other type of event. So clearly it's like a massive issue. Um one of the reasons is lots of entrepreneurs in the UK are immigrants themselves. So we did a did a study a couple of years back. We looked at the proportion of uh, entrepreneurs who run the fastest growing businesses in the UK uh, that are immigrants. And we found that half were, were, were born outside the UK, or at least half of the businesses had one founder who was born outside the UK. So that shows just how important it is. Um and I think, yeah, so if one of the problems is it's a very bureaucratic process. So hopefully some of these reforms can lift that bureaucracy. Uh, so you have to pay all these fees. You have to get it registered. You need to hire a lawyer basically to do it. So it's effectively like we have an immigration tax of like around about £3,000, £4,000, plus a bit more probably in terms of lawyer and in terms of how much of a lawyer you need. So that's a bit of a problem, I think. Uh, so hopefully this new system helps with that. Um, the the other thing is, uh, so so what they want to do is make a special visa for just for scale ups. Um, so one of the problems is how do you define a scale up? So do you just go with twenty percent growth over three years? Um, so one of my friends, uh, Mark Hart, is a professor at uh, Aston University. He he basically started all this scale up obsession about. 10, 10, 10 or so years ago, but he's actually become a bit more sceptical of the scale-up term. He says that, okay, you can have businesses that go through these scale-up phases, but actually there are businesses that don't grow at 20% in any year, but they grow up 10% consistently. Now, do you want to disadvantage those relative to the rest? And people sometimes go in these spurts where maybe in one year they'll do all of their growth and then plateau for four years. So I wonder if there might be a bit of over-specific targeting here that could could cause a problem. Uh, but in general, I think it's really important. And one of the things I'm glad about is they're looking at consulting on the innovator visa. And so this was kind of an idea that we weren't the only ones, but we certainly helped uh, lobby for it and push for it, that if you want to come to the UK as an entrepreneur, obviously you don't have a job offer or anything like that. So the system can be quite complex for you. Uh, and if you haven't got investment for your company yet, and you just kind of have potential, you just have a good idea, that can be tricky too. So one of the ways around it was we wanted to make it possible for organizations like accelerators and incubators. So maybe something like Entrepreneur First, where you join there, they take you through the basics of entrepreneurship, meet, make you mix you up with some other founders. Uh, and then you start a business where they take some equity in your business. Places like that should be able to endorse entrepreneurs. Now, the problem is the process of becoming a, an endorsement body is really, really complicated. You carry some legal risk. You still have to basically do a lot of bureaucracy for that. And the and the and at, at the end of it, you can't actually charge for the right to endorse people. So as a result, there's no incentive to become an endorsing body. It's really only if you want to make it as part of your general offering. So maybe you might take a greater equity stake in the business in your offering for those for those people so that might be like a reverse incentive but that's not great because you don't want to encourage people to take too much equity too early on uh 
and especially and it doesn't really do anything for entrepreneurs who've already got investment and want to come to the UK. Uh, there were problems with the previous system we had for that. Basically, I think of the like 500 people a year who were, or like, it was something like, I don't know if it was 500 or 5,000 people a year, but a ridiculously large proportion of them were running Subway uh, franchises, um, which isn't the kind of entrepreneurship we really want to uh, back in the UK. It's kind of like... Oh, I don't know, if you like tried their nachos. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was having a long chat with uh, Sam, Sam Bowminister about uh, where what the value sandwich is, whether it's the, uh, I think it was the spicy Italian versus the BMT. Uh, so that, I'm a spicy Italian man myself when it comes to that. I don't know whether that's in alignment with your views. Yeah, I believe you get more meat and also of a higher quality. Uh, but that that's a other sandwich shops are available. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pin factory top tip for this podcast. Is get your spicy Italian. Well, we're done now. We, we don't need to provide any more content. <laughs> it's what the people it's what they've been waiting for. Well, now, now I'm I'm kind of stuck with visions of a, a sort of immigration version of Dragon's Den for um, prospective entrepreneurs who want to to enter the UK and get <laughs> endorsement in exchange for greater equity stake from uh, from the dragons. But I think on on this section we're probably on on time here. Um, unless did you have anything quick to add, sir? Well, I was just say on the Dragon's Den point, it it kind of basically is like that at the moment in a way, but with actual business experts who know what they're talking about but previously uh it was civil servants doing that job and civil servants basically had to work out whether something was a legitimate qualifying business or not and you can imagine how crazy that is because if you can Mm. work this kind of stuff out you probably shouldn't be working the civil service you could probably be earning a lot more money working for a bank I'll keep an eye on the podcast feedback for a one-star rating from Deborah Meaden. Uh, but with that uh, note in mind, I think it's time we move on, sadly, to, to some of the more negative news to come out of the budget, specifically the, the focus on tax and spend. Chancellor Rishi Sunak has very much announced a big spending, big taxing budget. Uh, the fundamental conundrum, according to the challenge release, is that spending is needed today in order to combat the pandemic, but public finances needed to be fixed in the medium to long term with higher taxes. Uh, before we get on to the spending, uh, sorry, before we get on to the taxes side of things, I just wanted to think quickly about some of the spending. Um, and we kind of want to get everyone's thoughts on um, particularly the start with the expansion of furlough scheme and the self-employment scheme until September. Uh, Sam, there's been some commentary that that's potentially leaving it going along for too long, isn't it? Yeah, but I, I'm pretty relaxed about this this stuff. I mean, if as long as you have a clear end point, then I don't think it's a huge problem. Worst case scenario is you waste a few months worth of wages. But in general, I think if you were expecting a strong recovery, and I think we will get a strong recovery simply because, uh, I, I mean, I don't know if you're like me, but, you know, not spending money on commuting each day, not going out to restaurants, I've accumulated a fair bit of savings. I suspect many people are in that position. Uh, and I probably will go to restaurants slightly more than I'd normally go to restaurants. And I'd probably go to attractions or whatever slightly more than I previously would have gone. So I I think there will actually be a bit of a spending boost just from people's uh, pent up savings. So I think that that is potentially going to actually mean that a lot of these companies might bring their workers back before the end of the furlough scheme. But obviously if you, you know, if if the job isn't viable, there is going to be a bit of waste, but I'm, you know, before before this whole thing, I wrote a piece with Sam Bowman looking at what we want to do basically with the budget, uh, with, with the sort of financial support of the coronavirus. And my conclusion was we wanted to essentially make, make it so that coronavirus is like an extended weekend or an extended holiday period. So, um, you know, p- people people don't lose their jobs every weekend and have to like find a new job. So as long as you stretch that period out and make it so that you can cover all the liquidity and the costs of living of those periods, it'd be good if we can go back as close to normal as possible. And I think the value of that is entrepreneurs will have built up all of these savings, built up all of these like ideas, all these relationships, 
you know, and those are valuable and we don't want to lose them. So I think the, the, the approach that Rishi has taken through, throughout the pandemic has been right. Just on the, um, yeah, just on the kind of pent up demand point, I think I've, I've probably single handedly maintained the profits of both Deliveroo and Uber Eats over this pandemic. So in terms of <laughs> savings, uh, as a result, I'm not quite sure that's the case. But just a, a couple of quick thoughts on, on the furlough scheme. I, I agree with you here, Sam. I think that it's it the extension of it is probably the correct way to go. And if it is phased out, then that should probably be done um, as, as a phasing out as opposed to being cut completely in, in one go. Um, there's also a, a kind of worry here that while different industries are going to be affected as different kind of restrictions are, are lifted. So there could be a case, although I'm, I'm not sure I'm convinced by this just yet, for a, a more targeted version specifically for where um, restrictions are likely to last longer. So if you think about kind of aviation and, and airports, for example, I think you, you're likely to see travel restrictions last a little bit longer than, than some other measures. And there might be a case for, for kind of extending the furlough in, in particular areas whilst uh, it's removed in others. I, I think I've probably got a few thoughts here. My first thought in terms of, um, I mean, I, I hope you're right, Sam, in terms of uh, being able to effectively what you're modeling is freezing the economy. Uh, I think there's always a risk and, and there will be to some extent inevitably some scarring, some relationships that have frayed, especially over this kind of longer period of lockdown or businesses that can't necessarily take on the amount of debt. So even if uh, you're a shutdown business thing, I was listening to uh, a podcast with a major owner of gyms in the UK talking about how their daily costs are something like 50,000 pounds. And that's after taking furlough, that's after all, all the, the government support. Um, and that's just because they have to continue paying. Even if they get some money off their rent, they've still got to keep paying some of their rent. They've got to keep paying for their bills. You know, I think they're a pretty big business. I think a lot of smaller businesses uh, risk shutting up shop when this is all over. Um, does that mean that we shouldn't continue going to furlough? No, it doesn't. Um, but I, I guess it does then raise the, the kind of other point, which is my mind, which is um, we saw a kind of an extension of some of the, the stake back loans and the, um, some extension of some grants. Um, I always have going through my head that the risk that although we do need to support the economy and we do need to support businesses staying, businesses staying alive, we also don't want to subsidise uh, for too long or keep alive businesses and business models that are no longer sustainable. Uh, for example, I think in future there's um, the, the biggest change we're going to see from COVID is the fact that we're going to people are going to um, commute to work less and you're going to see a lot more work from home, so you're not going to need as for one example, we're not going to need as many sandwich shops in the city of London. Now, we don't want to subsidise the sandwich shops to keep operating. We, we want to allow those companies to die and the space to be put to different use. Are you worried at all, Sam, that we're going to have a phenomenon of you know what some economists would call zombie companies um, when this is all over? Companies are very indebted, not necessarily that sustainable, not necessarily that productive, but have just been held up because of the low cost of borrowing because of all the, the state subsidies. I, I, think it's, I think it's tricky. I mean... It's very hard to forecast which way it's going to go. I mean, we could, a lot of the shift from working to home could just completely reverse. We could see a complete sort of 180 in by October where everyone's just commuting in as normal and they just clearly value that. And maybe occasionally people don't go in on Fridays, but that doesn't affect their uh, sandwich shop expenditure. So you wouldn't want to like let them die uh, necessarily without knowing that uh, at the moment, I think, um, yeah, it's 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 a it's a it's a really sort of tricky question for the chancellor, and I think probably the right thing to do is to shift as much support from supporting existing businesses now to also supporting new businesses, whether it's with tax incentives or support with employment costs. So, I mean, what I would have done probably was would be look at some sort of national insurance cut uh one thing i think is tempting would have been to just to announce a hiring uh, national insurance holiday on all new hires for the next two years uh i think i think measures like that probably would have would have made a difference and i think that they, they make a lot of sense so that's probably the best way of getting around just supporting uh, businesses that maybe you know your debenhams even though i think they have gone bust uh, you know, those businesses probably are not viable in the future is just try and shift as much activity to the new businesses. And that's probably how I resolve it. 
So on the other side of this coin, uh, the chancellor was very keen to stress uh, the notion that he wants to be fiscally responsible and that we're going to have to start paying back uh, some of what's been spent, um, or at the very least ensure that the budget is put onto stronger fiscal grounds. And he's taken the, the relatively unusual step, I think, of flagging there will be tax increases in a couple of years' time. Um, then should we be, I mean, in itself, should we be concerned about increasing taxes and perhaps we'll be even more concerned about the fact that we're flagging this years in advance? Is that perhaps undoing a lot of the good work we talked about earlier when it came to the, the factory tax abolition? Well, I think in, in one sense, it's good that he has flagged it years in advance as opposed to now, which was, I think, the biggest concern that a lot of a lot of people had that we would see a, a kind of imminent rise in the headline rate of corporation tax. Uh, and the problem there, of course, is that you're raising taxes at the specific time where you're, you're going to be choking off a recovery. So we're not jeopardizing the recovery in the short term, at least through um, announcing that you're going to do it later on. But on the other hand, even though, you know, as we mentioned earlier on in relation to the factory tax, the headline rate in itself is is not as important when it comes to those day-to-day investment decisions. It still is important when it comes to firms' decisions to locate in the UK or not. Um, and one of the advantages that we've had for, for many years is that relatively low rate compared to other OECD countries um, for, for attracting firms to, to set up and, and create jobs and uh, and raise wages and productivity in the UK. Uh, and we are going to have to have to deal with the fallout from quite a significant raise in the rate. And the other problem here is that corporation tax in itself is just not the best way of raising revenue. You can accept the need. Um, I'm, and to be honest, I'm not sure I do. Um, I'm also a believer in the idea that we're going to have a strong recovery. But let's take for granted or let, let's accept for the sake of argument that we are going to need to significantly raise taxes and actually uh, the recovery won't just pay back the debt we've accumulated um, in itself. Corporation tax is a very inefficient way of doing that. We've had a long tradition at the ASI of uh, of looking at the research on the corporation tax and, and its effects and uh, its incidence as well. Um, I remember a few years ago, we had our former head of research, Ben Southwood, write an excellent paper summing up some of the research on corporation tax that looked at the incidents, found around half, um, give or take, falls on, on workers themselves. It was transferred to, to the pockets of, of workers themselves. Um, I had an interesting uh, talk on Twitter with, I think it was Evolved Politics, one of the, these left-leaning kind of news sites, and, um, and I ended up taking the mickey out of them by talking about how corporations are, um, you know, that they're not made up of people or anything like that and, and got them to agree that um, in fact corporations were people so that was quite interesting but uh, at the end of this you, you are going to have people being penalized um, by, by these rates it's going to choke off the recovery um, if, if that's a concern and at the end of the day it's just not the most efficient way of raising the revenue that we, we may not even need uh, in the grand scheme of things. I, I think also it's, it's worth pointing out how that once we raise corporation tax, we need to get beyond this idea of uh, we have the lowest rate in the G7 because uh, the headline rate doesn't matter. It's the effective marginal tax rate. It's right. the tax rate that affects actual investment decisions. So Dan Needle, he's a lawyer at Clifford Chance, uh, and he's he's made the point that basically the UK never really did this big reversal on corporation tax. The effective rate on tax has basically been roughly the same throughout the period. We raise about as much revenue from corporation tax in 2020, in 2019 as we did in 2009 and in 2010. The changes are not that significant. Uh, but what we've done is we basically paid for headline rate cuts with uh stingier capital allowances which is probably the stupidest thing you can do uh, and it also means that you know we effectively raise taxes on manufacturing firms in the north uh, while cutting them on uh, ip heavy or service companies in the south uh, and we even created a special tax regime just for ip income called the patent box which you'd think that patents are enough of an incentive to invest in ip themselves i mean you get a monopoly basically on your idea for 20 or so years but we have a special tax rate for ip which is kind of another of those measures if you look at our effective marginal corporate tax rate now uh what's going to be in 2023 when the super deduction ends 
but we do have a uh, we do have a 25% corporate tax rate. The UK in the OECD will be ahead of France. Uh, sorry, higher tax than France, and only New Zealand, Spain, and Australia <laughs> will have uh, lower rates of um, effective marginal rates of corporate tax. So it's actually a really significant change and doesn't make us internationally competitive at all. Um, even in the headline rate, the UK is about middle, middle ranking in the OECD. And I think what people really neglect is you know it's fine to compare us against big countries like the US or Spain, Italy, France, whatever. But the main problem is that we have a country on our doorstep, literally with a land border, uh, with a much lower rate of corporation tax. In, 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 the, in the case of Ireland, which is a twelve and a half percent headline rate, so it's very easy to shift activity from the UK to Ireland speak the same language, have attained the same time zone, you can travel between the two countries very easily. So if you want com- so companies can very easily shift their headquarters from London to Dublin and vice versa. So that that is why we have to be a bit more cautious on these headline rate rises. I think what you're missing here, Sam, is that, of course, this is actually a masterful piece of uh, pro-Anglo-Irish relation diplomacy and we're purposely doing this to boost our, our friends and partners in, uh, in the Republic. Um, just something that you mentioned earlier, obviously the kind of worry is that post the super deduction, which has been labelled and, and called temporary, we are going to have a very uncompetitive uh, regime of, of corporate tax. Do you think that the kind of the Chancellor's aim here and the government's aim is to actually make this permanent to kind of demonstrate it as proof of concept so they've got the political capital to make it permanent? Or is that more of a, a hope than an expectation? It's tricky, but I lean towards thinking they will try and make it permanent, purely because you don't want, you wouldn't allow such a massive cliff edge if you didn't think that you were going to do something on it later, and you just wanted to delay the announcement. This, by the way, is like silly politics, and it's not sensible in in terms of how you'd want to do it. But you should. He, the fact that there's such a big cliff edge, and that the OBR is forecasting a pretty significant drop in investment and they're actually not forecasting investment over this sort of five-year period to be any higher as a result because of these higher tax rates and because of the fact that deduction disappears after two years so i think it's almost certain that he will do it but he's trying to build up that evidence base and the other benefit is that the cost's going to be lower so one of the things is your you you're not only are you having to deduct the previous capital allowances, which have written down year after year, but you're also deducting all the investment in that year. So in the first year of full expensing, it's quite a large fiscal cost. But as you don't have that fiscal cost going, recurring year after year after year, in the long run, it becomes cheaper and cheaper as more of those capital allowances are worked through the system. So I think after two years, we estimated that something like 20 to 25 percent of the fiscal cost of uh, full expensing falls uh, just because you get get a load of capital out of the system then i think after five years it roughly halves so potentially it's a lot of an it's an easier sell in in a few years time it's not as big a fiscal expenditure so that that could be another thing uh, that's motivating his decision making I think it's worth unpacking a bit here, though, the basis on which the Chancellor is intending to increase taxes, um, putting aside the fact that I think having uh, saying that you're going to do a tax increase in a few years' time uh, does effectively have the same impact as announcing you're going to do it in the shorter term because people do make longer-term investment decisions and you've got to risk you're going to lose some of those longer-term investments because if I have a decision today, although... Um, uh, I can access that that super deduction that's only lasting a couple of years. But I know after that, when I do start making profits, I'm going to be paying huge amounts of tax on that. It's a huge disincentive. Um, I think it's worth pointing out, as as far as I can see, the the increasing in taxes, and there's a whole bunch of them, they're freezing um, the income tax thresholds, they're, they're freezing the pension um, thresholds as well, and, uh, as well as um, VAT thresholds and whatnot, in order to just raise this extra revenue. Is it's first of all based upon the assumption that um, 
the economy is is going to get back to where it was, but not where it was going to be. So we're, we're going to next year get to where the economy was last year, but that's still below where the economy previously was. At the same time, the government expansion needs to go up. The, the spending they want to do is going up and therefore they need to raise um, more tax revenue. They're not actually going to be paying back all the debt in any meaningful way that they have borrowed. All they're going to be doing is using these tax increases in order to fund future spending. Um, and some of that is spending increases. There's that great irony, I think, throughout the budget um, where Rishi says, effectively, you know, we need tax increases. There's no more spending to cut. And then he announces a bunch of new spending, you know, a billion pound handout to towns, 150 million to, to fund to buy pubs, theatres, shops, local sports clubs, more on this leveling up fund, you know, a whole bunch of the kind of usual giveaways. And that's just in this budget, let alone all the previously accumulated um, giveaways that have been put in place. So effectively, what we're doing is increasing taxes in order to fund that. Now, I, I think, and um, Sam, you're probably the one who, who sent me uh, this study, which um, looked at how to do austerity in a sense, which is if your goal is to increase um, the, sorry, if your goal is to de- decrease deficit and decrease the amount of debt, um, increasing taxes doesn't tend to prove very effective because in, in the long run, it, it decreases economic activity to the point where as a proportion of GDP, you don't actually end up with that much more revenue. Um, and spending cuts are far, far more effective if you want to continue um, economic growth as well as paying back um, deficit and debt. Now, of course, this government doesn't seem to be willing to do those spending cuts. So I think the longer term consequence of all this is effectively we're going to have a smaller economy with a bigger government. And we've already seen that. Uh, the, the fact is that we're going to see a tax burden, um, the highest it's been since the 60s. Um, and that's because, again, the government wants to spend more and they, they want to take up a bigger chunk of the economy in order to do all the spending. And they have to tax through that because they want to spend. It's, the goal is not effectively to grow the economy, um, even though they, they want to you know, encourage investment and whatnot. It, they're not going to be able to achieve that, particularly if they do just keep in increasing taxes and increasing the size of government. So I think it's quite a worrying state of affairs. I don't know, Sam, if, if you share my concerns um, in terms of the outcomes of all this or if you're a bit more optimistic about uh, a kind of growth in the future despite the government trying to tax the economy even more. Yeah, so the, the research you're referring to there is uh, research from Alessina, uh, who sadly actually I think died last year or the year before that, quite young, surprisingly. But he he basically was kind of the, the guru on austerity and making the case that it's spending cuts, not tax rises, that are the best way to do austerity in terms of getting economic growth, getting a recovery, and actually reducing the debt burden. Uh, and I actually know uh, of a treasury spat, he's no longer a treasury spat, but I believe he actually uh, waved around Alessina's book in meetings uh, when people were talking about tax rises. Uh, it's not like, quite the constitution of liberty, but I'm sure it's uh, it's good enough. This is what we believe slams on the table. But, but <laughs> effect, effectively, that, that is what what the, what we previously did believe uh, in government. It seems, and it seems that's kind of been forgotten. But I, it's a bit of a shame we don't have someone making that case uh, in the treasury anymore. Uh, and I hope and I hope that some at some point they will pick up that research again and look at the impact and look at how, you know, cutting taxes and cutting spending is a better way to boost the economy uh, rather than trying to uh, raise taxes and raise spending that won't fundamentally pay down your debt because you're constantly sapping the productive potential. And one reason to, to be concerned about the productive potential being sapped is look at the growth figures, uh, the growth forecasts from the OBR. In, I think, 2023, 24, and 2025, it's like 1.6%, 1.7%. Um, it's mm. crazy how low it is. We're not, we're not America, right? Like, America, if they want to grow more, they literally have to invent new technologies. They, like, have, they're at the peak. They, you know, they're, they're at the frontier of technology. They have to push that, te- that frontier forward. We don't have to push the frontier forward. We just have to drag ourselves closer to that frontier. So it should be a lot easier for us <laughs> to get growth. Yet, for some reason, America is growing a lot faster than us and has been growing a lot faster than us for the past decade. And we've been growing very, very sluggishly. So I think that is a is a real problem. And uh, there was a tweet uh, today from uh, Mike Bird, uh, journalist at the Wall Street Journal. He made the point that Japanese real GDP per capita 
rose by about 10.8% between 1990 and This is what we call the lost decade. UK GDP between uh, 2007 and 2019 was half that, 5.4%. And, you know, we're still forecast to grow really sluggishly. We, we've not got this, like, period of catch-up growth, as you'd suspect. So we're, we're probably going to have two uh, back-to-back lost decades. That's insane. That should be something that's, like, constantly being banged on about. We should have the chance to, like, massively going out and saying, we need more growth, we need growth, uh, I will end this lost decade. But we just sort of like, you know, just just like, oh, who cares, you know, what, what's growth? GDP isn't the true measure of a nation's worth. Yeah, <laughs> the, the starkest um, statistic on this, at least in my head, is the fact that uh, Britain is poorer than practically every American state, with the exception, I think, of perhaps Mississippi. It's literally the, the poorest uh, parts of America are still richer um, than, than the average person in, in Britain. I think that's kind of embarrassing in a way, and it's also not something you want to point out excessively. But if you if you can't grow the economy, if you can't increase people's standard of living, you're going to have huge, huge issues. The thing we've got to remember is that the American states don't have London either. They don't have one of the greatest cities in the world. They don't have Oxford University. They don't have Cambridge University either. You know, we have so much going for us and we're still there. True yeah. universities. <laughs> we've, we've got, you know, we've got the, like, these great institutions. We've got the city of London. We've got all these things. And still the rest of the country is doing so badly relative that we're, we're you know, we're near the bottom in terms of GDP. If you put in purchasing power parity, we're like, uh, lower mid-table, which is a little bit better because America's richer, things cost more as a result because um, they, they, they just have a higher demand and that sort of thing. So that, that's so it's not quite so bad, but I think it is pretty absurd. And I think one of the problems is that the Conservative Party's voter base is effectively people who have very little stake in uh, growth. Uh, so think of so basically most Tory voters are pensioners right that that's where they sweep up all the votes they get something like 70 percent of pensioners something absurd like that and pensioners are a larger proportion of the population because we've invented good health care and you know t- treatments and we no, we don't all die at the age of five anymore and all of that sort of good stuff <laughs> right so there's a lot of pensioners most of them vote Tory Pensions have a thing called the triple lock, where their pensions will go up by two and a half percent regardless of what happens. If we have a five percent recession, uh, or we have a ten percent recession that like we've had last year, they're, they're, they go up by two and a half percent. If wages rise above two and a half percent, as they're forecast to do in, in the coming years, we're expected to have a few years of four point six percent earnings growth as we sort of catch up from all of the earnings lost from the pandemic then what happens? Pensioners get a 4.6% growth boost, uh, pension boost. So literally they can win, they win no matter what happens. So they have no incentive to push for policies that lead to higher growth. Uh, So clearly we should have tried to fix the triple lock. And that's a much more sensible way of saving money. And the other part of the Tories kind of new electoral coalition, which is the kind of this whole, you know, leveling up northern voters in towns or whatever. It seems like the, the government's intent on basically not really leveling up, but more kind of reallocating economic activity away from the city of London towards these northern cities. It's almost like a redistributive effort around geographical areas. It's not saying we should lift the quality of life and quality of living for everyone in the UK. And of course, the city of London would be a key part of that because that, that is where you know, the UK really shines. Instead, we kind of want to shuffle it around a bit. And I think that whole concept as well, and that seems to be where a lot of the spending is going and where a lot of the government's focus is, is not really on um, increasing quality of life. Uh, Rather, the North were poorer, provided London was less rich, I think is appropriate (laughs) here. (laughs) Indeed, indeed. There's one last point uh, we've been going on for quite a while here that I just wanted to touch on quickly, just because um, the ASI has done so much work on housing uh, in the past, is one of the big other big announcements from the budget that was very much jam-packed was this new mortgage scheme um, to replace help to buy. It's this idea that a key reason why uh, people can't access 
um, finance to buy a home, particularly young first-home buyers, is because of requirements to have deposits and they should be able to get 95% loans and the government's going to effectively back those loans, that they're going to subsidise those loans. Um, I think uh, from our perspective, at least, in which we see the key issue with planning as supply-driven, um, that's a pretty disastrous idea, isn't it, Daniel? Yeah, from help to buy to mortgage guarantees is uh, kind of out of the frying pan and into the fire a little bit. Um, <laughs> both particularly particularly uniquely terrible ways of, um, of trying to sort out the housing market. Uh, it ends up, what all it ends up sorting out is it, it pumps up demand in the same way that help to buy did without any credible plan to, to actually boost the supply of new homes, which is you know ultimately the cause of the affordability crisis that we have. But there's also a, a kind of curious contrast between, and I think we mentioned this in, in our media comment on, um, on the policy, a, a curious contrast between the government very much being focused on um, on reducing the debt and being concerned about borrowing um, on the national level, and then very much subsidising it uh, in in the kind of the housing market. Here now, it, it's true to say, obviously, uh, a government and their borrowing is not quite like a household here. But the the net effect of this is just going to be another housing bubble. Um, you now, it might not be as as dramatic as the last one we had. It would be quite difficult to make it. Uh, as dramatic as that but do you have such yeah, little faith yeah yeah quite um no it's it's just pumping up demand without touching supply now obviously we have got the the kind of the incoming reforms rate to su- supply but that doesn't mean that pumping up demand is is any more of a, a better idea than it has been in the past where you're just going to you know inflate the rest of the housing market for for those who can't take advantage of these mortgage guarantees who aren't first time buyers and, and obviously it's yeah what what i find frustrating is the obsession with home ownership so i think it's like a lot of people want to own houses great but at the same time people rent uh i care more about housing costs you know whether the cost of servicing a mortgage plus your deposit or the cost of rent you know i want to know how much it costs to basically keep a roof over your head and these sort of demand side policies uh, do very, very little to help help cut the cost of housing. They might, uh, they kind of just redistribute how it's allocated. So if you're someone like Ian Mulhern, who believes that housing crisis is fundamentally a problem of distribution, a policy like this is, is seen as a good idea. But I don't think it is one of distribution because very easily there's loads of land around London, around Oxford, Cambridge, around the southeast, where if you were to grant them planning permission to build on that land, that land would like triple, would not even triple, it would be something like could increase 30 fold in value. Uh, there's that, you know, we have a magic money tree, we can literally just create growth just by like a stroke of a pen. We can say this bit of land on the green belt, this, oh, I, the thing that was annoying me today, it was a, uh, it was the, yesterday, it was a, um, a scrapyard and a hand car wash that was next to a park. They wanted to build five-story houses on it. Imagine the value increase from that, but there's a campaign to instead have that development blocked on the grounds that it would create too big a shadow on the park. And it was like, <laughs> their, their example was, I think, like this would be how big the shadow would be at midday in midsummer. Now, I think at the point of midsummer, you do need a few shady spots in the park, first of all. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's just... Well, I'm meant to sunbathe. I don't understand. You just have this, like, relentless nimbyism blocking your development. <laughs> so I think we hopefully this planning reform that they've proposed will come through and deliver more houses. Uh, I suspect that it's going to be watered down even further from what it currently is. Uh, that's why I think we need policies like street votes. So uh, ASI is sort of the first think tank to sort of talk about it. Uh, former ASI head of research, Ben Southwards, published a really, really, really good paper for Policy Exchange a few weeks ago, which sort of fleshed it out in a level of detail where I think you can basically just copy and paste that paper into law and you basically, you don't need the lawyers, you don't need any accounts. It literally adjusts for any amendments that would be like raised at potential debate. It's like, oh, what about this? Or what about that? It's covered it and it's got a good solution to it. And it's like 
it's literally it's what I think Boris calls oven ready pop it uh, microwave microwavable policy. You it's it's there. We could do it. It wouldn't upset anyone because you literally have to to exercise their powers. You literally have to persuade sixty percent of the street to actually uh, agree to it. Uh, and that would create a really powerful incentive for loads of parts around the UK where you have like streets of bungalows that could potentially every homeowner could get an extra million quid if they converted them into, uh, you know, four story or five story houses. So that could be like a radical, radical reform, but actually popular and not as controversial as, say, planning reform is seems to be so that is what i think we should be hoping for and that's how we're going to solve the housing crisis not making it easier to borrow money uh which i don't think is sensible at all well let's hope that we're all wrong here and that we're not about to see another gigantic subprime mortgage crisis in the uk um uh, hopefully the the world of of the last uh, the second half of this podcast does not um, turn out. And in fact, the government does take more notice of all our policy ideas and uh, creates huge amounts of growth that mean that taxes don't have to increase and we can live at a high quality of life and also fund all the public spending and, and public services that we need. That's going to be the utopian uh, note I'm going to end this podcast on. Um, so thank you very much uh, for listening. My name is Matthew Lesh and I'm the head of research at the ASI. You've been listening to our head of programs and my co-host Daniel Pryor. Uh, as well as the, the man of the moment, the um, inventor of the idea of uh, abolishing the factory tax, um, Santa Mitchell, who is the, the research director at the Entrepreneurs Network. Um, again, thank you very much for listening. If you have enjoyed the podcast, please do subscribe in your chosen podcast provider. Mm-hmm.